Okay, so um, the first subject that we're going to go over is something that, you, you know, you almost don't need to go over it. Uh, but I found that every time I go over the subject of the existence of God, people walk away, and no matter how much they've learned or studied, uh, they walk away with a deeper appreciation for why we believe in what we believe it, why we, and what we believe. Um, but, you know, it, it actually it opens up with a really interesting question. Um, why do we learn about our faith? Why do we learn? Why do I sit down and tell you this stuff? Um, it's not learning for its own sake. It's learning at the service of love. You can't love what you don't know. And I'm convinced that many people that walk away from their faith, no, not many people, almost everyone who walks away from their faith, somewhere down along the line, they don't really know what they're walking away from. Like I, I watched a match of cricket on TV when I was overseas. Couldn't stand it. Right? I stayed interested for about three minutes. I had no idea what was going on. I had a friend from India. He was over here. He sat down and he watched Monday Night Football. Couldn't stand it. Right? Got up and walked away. He had no idea what was going on. You can't love what you don't know. Now, here's the interesting thing about our faith. It's not a body of knowledge to, to, to have mastered. A lot of people think, at some level, they think that's what our faith is. Know this, and it's as if there's a test at the gate of heaven. If you get the right answers, God lets you in. And, and hope you know how absurd that is. A lot of people think our faith reduces to what you do. If you're a good person, you know, why, if you died tonight and I said, why should God let you into heaven? Most people answering that question would say, I'm a really good person. Right? I, I, I'm, I, I helped out, I gave a dollar to the homeless the other day on the street and I helped an old lady cross the street. I'm a really good person. A lot of people think our faith reduces to defining what it means to be a good person. And surprisingly, it doesn't. Let me tell you, let me tell you the heart of it. The heart of our faith is a love relationship with God from which everything else flows. That's the truth. If you love God deeply, and if you know who God is, you can't help but express it in good works and um, all the other beautiful fruit, fruits flow from it. Ultimately, Somebody once, I saw, somebody once asked, they said, um, what's life all about? It better not be about work. <laughs> I think you all know at an intuitive level, if I were to ask you what's life all about, and I said the answer is love, at an intuitive level, I think you'd say, yeah, that sounds about right. What I want to do is try to expand on that, okay? It is all about love, but what does that mean? And who do we love? What I'd like to say is that it means loving God, first and foremost, and he leads you to love everybody else. That's what it's all about. And what I want to try to do, I want to try to tell you all that that implies. Okay. Um, they say the devil's in the details. And I'm going to have a lot of details for you. I'll do my best to try to help them, help them make sense. Uh, it, as, as your notes here tell you, it, it, it clears the misunderstandings that sour our love and, and blunt our love like hell. A lot of people don't understand how there can even be a hell. We'll get to that, okay? Um, but the very, the very, very beginning, the very beginning, and this is a very helpful subject, to talk about God's existence. You wouldn't be here if you 
didn't already have some decent understanding of God's existence. And something like, you know, 73% of Americans surveyed by Time magazine say they believe in the existence of a higher power. Um, but let's take a closer look at this, even though you probably are already convinced. Uh, let's begin by considering this. It's, it's quite simply the most important question in the whole world. If God exists, then you, know, you start following logically from that. Everything that we do takes its meaning in relation to God. And if God doesn't exist, um, well, this might seem like a leap of logic, but if God doesn't exist, nothing has any meaning at all. There's no right, there's no wrong. Uh, ultimately, we are all destined to just fade away, die, reunite with the dirt of the earth. Someday the sun's going to burn out into a cold cinder and all of our constituent elements are going to rejoin the cosmos. And it doesn't really matter whether you've done right or wrong because what difference does it make? Ultimately, God's existence is the most important question of all. Um, you know, who's ever heard of John Paul Sartre? He's a French atheist philosopher. I really encourage you just for fun to brush up on John Paul Sartre. Most people who say they don't believe in God are not really being honest. Most people who say they don't believe in God, they do believe in God because they believe in right and wrong. Um, John Paul Sartre, he, he was, the reason why he was such a great philosopher was because he said he didn't believe in God and he was absolutely consistent with it. He was completely consistent. And as a, as a consequence, he said absolutely nothing makes any difference whatsoever. There's, there's, people said, well, why are you bothering explaining this to me if nothing makes any difference? Why are you bothering even talking, speaking in sentences? He says, it's what I do. It's just what I do. But he was a completely consistent uh, uh, atheist. Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of my favorite novelists, because he writes about right and wrong, God and sin. and One of the most cogent lines ever written in literature, if God doesn't exist, everything is permissible. There's no right, there's no wrong. Ever stop to consider that the animals in the forest and the fishes in the sea, they don't have a morality. They just do whatever they want. Uh, if God doesn't exist, we shouldn't. We don't really have a morality either. Okay, so this is this is really really important. Sigmund Freud, um, himself not a believer, uh, said that religious faith is a species of insanity. Now, he wasn't a believer. If God doesn't exist, then religious faith is insanity. Stop and think about what insanity means for just a moment. Insanity, short, here's a short working definition of insanity. Insanity is being out of touch with reality. I've got a little reference here in your uh, notes to Harvey the Rabbit. Who's ever heard of Harvey the Rabbit? Raise your hand if you've heard of Harvey the Rabbit. Harvey the Rabbit was an old movie. You know, you know Jimmy Stewart? It's a Wonderful Life. He did a movie called Harvey. And in this movie, this man sees an eight-foot rabbit. And he talks to him, and he's his best friend. And nobody else in the world can see the rabbit, just him. And, of course, everybody thinks he's crazy. He walks around all day long referencing Harvey and what Harvey says thinks he should do and what Harvey wants, and you got to know my friend Harvey, and nobody can see Harvey except him. And, of course, they all think he's crazy, right? Out of touch with reality. Well, by the end of the movie, you come to realize Harvey is actually real, and he's the only sane person in the world. <laughs> if God doesn't exist, we're all as crazy as Jimmy Stewart because we believe in something that doesn't exist. So Sigmund Freud, at least he's logically consistent. 
Okay. Um, so let's talk about this for just a moment. Now, if you go to like atheist websites and you start listening to atheists, I'm going to save you a lot of time. I'm going to summarize everything that they say. They make two points and two points only. The first point that atheists make is that believing in God is unnecessary or psychologically harmful. That's the first point they make. It keeps you from science, or it stunts your growth, or it gives you Oedipus complex, or the heebie-jeebies, or the whim-whams. It's bad for you. That's summarize 90% of what atheists say. There's only one argument atheists ever make that God actually doesn't exist. So, like, you could say God is psychologically harmful, but you haven't proven he doesn't exist. He, he could very well exist, but you, you better keep your distance, right? You know, like a Bengal tiger in the wild, stay away. Um, but there's only one argument that God doesn't exist. And it's right here in your notes. It's the problem of evil. Let's talk about it for just a moment, because this is the only one that you really need to know. Okay? Um... The problem of evil. It basically says that because there's evil in the world, there can't be God. Let me give you three formulations of the argument, and I hope these make sense. Here's the first formulation. and This is somewhat tight logic, but you can follow it. If one of two opposites is infinite, the other can't exist. Infinite light, infinite darkness. If there's infinite light, there's no such thing as dark. If there's infinite dark, there's no such thing as light, right? The other can't exist. Well, God means infinite goodness. So if there's a God, then the opposite, evil, can't exist. But evil does exist. Therefore, God does not. Make sense? That's an argument. Here's another argument. If God exists, he's all good and he's all powerful, because that's what we mean by God. If God was all good, he would only will good, not evil. And if he was all-powerful, he'd get everything he wants. So if God exists, everything should be good. But everything is not good. Therefore, God does not exist. Pretty tight argument. Here's the third one. If God is good and he loves us, and he loves us, he wants us to be happy. And if he's all-powerful, he gets anything he wants. But we're not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. If God exists, he's either a bad God or a weak God. And that's not God at all. That's not what we mean by God. By the way, there's a subspecies of atheism called process theology. And I'll just summarize it for you. It says that God exists, but you know, he's still he's still developing. He's like a teenager. Right? He's still kind of growing up. But and we'll get to this in a moment. Uh, that's atheism. That's not what we mean by God. If you believe in a teenage God, you're an atheist. Okay, because that's not what we mean by God. But the interesting thing about all three of those arguments were not formulated by atheists. They were formulated by believers. The first argument comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. The second argument comes from St. Augustine. The third argument comes from C.S. Lewis. You ever heard of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The author of that, right? Okay. So let's first let's tackle the problem of evil. And I want to tell you that it's a very, very strong argument. A very strong argument. To tackle the problem of evil, we have to take a little bit of a... This is helpful for you, I hope. We have to take a little bit of a foray through the rules of logic. Okay, Through the rules of logic. If I want to disprove an argument, there's three tools that I can use to disassemble anyone's argument. I can say that they have false premises. 
I can say that they have bad logic, or I can say they're using squishy terms. Let's look at each one of those. False premises. I can prove anything in the world on false premises. I got here in your notes. All priests can fly like Superman. I am a priest, therefore I can fly like Superman. Are you convinced? Of course not, because what's the problem with it? The premise, all priests can fly like Superman. I can prove anything with false premises. There's gold at the end of the rainbow. There's a rainbow, therefore there's gold at the end of it. Are you convinced? No, false premises, right? Okay, faulty logic. Everyone who lives in Fredericksburg lives in Virginia. I don't live in Fredericksburg, therefore I don't live in Virginia. Some people don't see the fault in that. I mean, the people use that kind of argument all the time. It's faulty logic. You see the faulty... There's a third way that you can tear apart an argument. It's in ambiguous terms. Banks are a safe place to put money. Rivers have banks. Therefore, river banks are a safe place to put money. Ambiguous terms. Only okay. $200,000. Yes, that's right. I, I, I could make jokes about the security of the FDIC. Right? I could make jokes about that. Um, but if I want to take apart the argument from evil, this is tight logic here for you. I've only got three choices. I can say there's false premises. I can say there's bad logic. Or I can say there's ambiguous terms. Of the arguments I went through, are there any false premises? I don't see any. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. These are all true premises. If God's all-powerful, he should be able to do anything he wants. Right? If infinite exists, the opposite infinite can't exist. Those are true premises. Is there any fault in the logic and the reasoning? There really isn't. Okay, so file this one away for your future argument with atheists. The only way you can disprove the argument from evil is to talk about the ambiguity of the terms that they use. And there's only two terms that they misuse. One is God and the other is evil. We're going to talk about the nature of God. So let me really quickly talk about the nature of evil because I'll just summarize this. You've heard uh, pain is weakness leaving the body. You've heard no pain, no gain. Okay. I'm going to, this is a gross oversimplification. But if you have to argue about the ex- existence of God and existence of evil, one, the way that you do it is you say evil is not a final state. Um, it's only a final state if you choose it to be. You can work through any hardship and come out the better for it. So can a community, so can it. See, that, it's an ambiguous term. It's being treated as the, the atheist who says evil proves God doesn't exist is assuming that evil is some kind of permanent final state, and I'm saying it's not. But let's talk about the other one, and this is really the big one. The nature of God. Most of the time, and I'm telling you, even believers misunderstand this. Most of the time people talk about God they equivocate the meaning of the word God. Now, let me throw this out. Um, um, most people think that God, when we say God, we believe in God, we believe in the greatest being in the whole universe. That's what most people think. And an atheist says no. In fact, I've heard this argument before. They say, I just believe in one less God than you do. It's an atheist argument. This, and it's as if to say, you know, in the ancient days they believed in Zeus and Thor and Aphrodite, and today you only believe in one God. Well, I just believe in one less God than you do. That's what they'll say. Um, and if you ask them what God is, 
they'll assume that you think you mean by God the same thing that they mean by God. And almost everybody thinks that when we say God, we mean the greatest being in the universe. And that's not what we mean. God is not a being in the universe. God is the very act of existence itself. And you have to think for a long time to wrap your mind around that. I can summarize. The fact that there is something rather than nothing is a slice of what we mean when we say that there's a God. God is, when we say God, we mean the very act of existence itself. And I'm I'm really jumping ahead here, but when God revealed himself to Moses in the Bible, and Moses said, what's your name? In Hebrew culture, names had meanings. In today's culture, names don't have meanings. You can ask a parent, why did you name your kid Jasmine? I don't know, I like the way it sounds. That's what most people do. Um, why'd you name your kid Paul? Well, his dad's name, Paul. Well, once upon a time, your name had a meaning. And when God told Abraham his name, we say it's Yahweh or Jehovah. The word in Hebrew actually means being or existence. God is the very act of existence itself. That's what we mean when we, that's what we mean when we say God. And by the way, when we talk about these proofs for the existence of God, there's no silver bullet. God is way, way, way too big to be contained in any single argument. But what, what, what we can do here with talking about why God exists, these proofs, we can give lots of little tiny slivers. And when you add them all up, they make a lot of sense. Um, one thing we have to say when talking about the existence of God is there's enough darkness in the world that if you don't want to believe in God, you've got plenty of reason not to believe. There's enough good in the world that if you do want to believe in God, you've got plenty of reason to believe. You know what that leaves you? Your freedom. And what did I say at the very beginning of this class? We're all about love. And love is nothing if not a free choice. God has given enough light to the world for anyone who wants to believe in him to choose it. And enough light, darkness, and confusion for anyone who doesn't want to believe in him not to choose it. Um, So, you know, to the idea that somebody can come along with like a silver bullet and just end all debate uh, is to misunderstand what we mean by God and what we mean by all of this. But these things, these ideas can help you. So, you know, what do we mean by God? I think this is very important. The very act of existence itself. What is God or who is God? Well, first thing we have to understand, God is a spirit. And a spirit, uh, well, everyone believes in it even if they say that they don't. I could go on and on about this, but a spirit has no shape, has no size, has no color, has no weight, doesn't occupy space. Matter does, right? Spirit does not. You, right now as you sit here, are matter and spirit. You know what the matter is. If you want to know what your spirit is, go to a funeral home and look at a body in a casket and ask yourself what's not there. The personality's not there. The memory's not there. <clears throat> the soul's not there. The soul is not there. The spirit isn't there. I'm getting ahead of myself in future lectures, but spirit is the death is the separation of your spirit and your body. What we say is God is a spirit. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself again when we say he became a man in Jesus Christ, but we'll get to that later. A spirit is what God is. 
A spirit is that part of you that knows. And I have to debunk a misunderstanding. You could not take a Petri dish, stir up the right chemicals, inject it into your brain with a syringe, and like have a college education as a consequence. It doesn't, no one will ever invent that. Knowledge can't be reduced to matter. Similarly, I can't create a love potion, right? Love potion number nine. If I just stir it up and you drink it, you know, you fall in love with the girl across the table from you. Um, it doesn't exist. Knowledge is actually spirit. It doesn't reduce to matter. Uh, functions in your head, right? But knowledge ultimately isn't the same thing as your brain cells. Your brain cells are vehicles of using spirit. Of, of using spirit. Same thing with love. I mean, like it, it works through your heart and your, you know, your heart rate, and you get all flush in the face and um, uh, say things you don't mean, and you know how you know how it can be when you're overwhelmed with emotion. But love doesn't reduce to that. It's actually spirit. That's a big idea. You have to kind of go home and gnaw, gnaw on that. But what we say is, God is spirit. He's that which knows and loves. You could say spirit has two powers, knowing and willing. Okay. The perfection of knowing is love. I'm sorry, the perfection of, 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 of knowing is truth. The perfection of willing is love. And that's what you're supposed to be. No, knowledge and true truth and love. So, but this particular spirit is, uh, is unique. It's infinite, without limit. As I said, God is existence itself. And every attribute of God is also infinite. We say God is knowledge. He's also infinite knowledge. God is love. He's also infinite love. God is justice. He's also infinite justice. Uh, whatever attribute you might be that you attribute to God, it's always infinite. Okay? That's the nature of the spirit. He's omnipresent and he's eternal. Where was God before the universe was created? The word where doesn't apply to God. The word when doesn't apply to God. Has no application whatsoever. Your mind can't wrap around it because you're not eternal. Um, but I can give you a little experiment right now. You can do this in your head in which you can experience a little bit of what the infinity of power of your the, the, the infinite power of spirit is. You can close your eyes right now. You don't have to do this, but do later. Close your eyes right now. Think about where you were last summer on summer vacation. Maybe you were in a faraway place or last time you took a trip. How long does it take you to get your imagination to go back to where you were? It's instant. But when you went there, you had to travel. It took time. That's the difference between matter and spirit. There's no such thing as when or where. You're instantly going wherever you want. The spiritual power that you just did. How long does it take you uh, to, to, to experience love when you, when you love somebody? It's, it's instant. Right? When you love someone, it's just there. There's no when with God and there's no where. He's changed. He, and and um, in addition, because God is the summit of all perfections, he can't change. Any change would be a change for the worse. Um, if you're standing on the South Pole and you move, there's no such thing as um, east or west. Uh, 
or south, when you're at the South Pole, every direction is north, right? Mm-hmm. Any change is, is a change for the north. Well, for God, any change is a change away from perfection. God doesn't change ever. It's absolute perfection. Omniscient. Again, this follows on what I said. God doesn't have knowledge. God is knowledge. Okay? Omnipotent. God doesn't have power. God is power. And I've got some little tangential points in here, like, can, you ever heard this before? Good God make a square circle? You ever heard that before? I don't want to confuse your head. Um, can God make a weight so heavy he can't lift it? I'll answer it since I've, since I've mentioned it. Those are, those are phrases that have no meaning. If I said, can God squiggle, squoggle, squoggle? You'd say, squiggle, squoggle, squoggle are sounds that have no meaning. Well, a square circle is a sound that has no meaning. It's, just, it's, a, it's a, a, a logical fallacy to propose it as a question. That's, God is omnibenevolent. He's the absolute perfection of loving. Okay? That's what we mean by God. Absolute summit of all perfection of knowledge, power, goodness, with nowhere and no when, God is the ab- and we're saying this is what we believe exists. Okay, now, how do you know God exists? If you look over your notes, I can't go over everything in your notes, but it, it's kind of a neat reference for you. There's two basic categories of belief, because I try to break this down, because I think the more you break it down, the easier, more intelligible it is. Two basic categories of belief for how you know God exists. <clears throat> One is from the world around us, okay? And they're called cosmological arguments. And the other is from our own experience, and they're called psychological arguments. Take a quick look at each of these, okay? Um, from the world around us, I've got a couple of them here for you, with lots of examples. One is order in the world, and the other is causality. Let's talk about the easy one first because I've already hinted on it, and it's causality. And you have to go forward a page in your notes to do this. <clears throat> um, causality. I said God is the very active existence itself. The fact that something exists rather than nothing exists is a sliver of what we mean that we say that, that there is a God. Okay. Um, everything comes from somewhere. If you saw a diamond ring on your desk, you know someone left it there. You saw those flowers, you know somebody at some point brought them in here. And you know this logically. There's a reason why everything exists. Everything has a cause. Everything is an interlocking series of causes. I'm here because I had parents. My parents are here because they had parents. Uh, you keep going far back enough and, yeah, I don't know, you end up with the Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon or whatever it might be. Um, you know, you start going back into prehistory and start coming up with theories as to how the universe got formulated. But the ultimate question is, why is there a universe at all? Why does anything exist? Now, if you pose this question to, like, a leading physicist, of say, you go to Cambridge University and everybody's heard of, was it Stephen Hawking, the guy in the wheelchair, right, who died recently. Why does the universe exist? <laughs> Ultimately, he'll say it just kind of always did. There's always some matter out there. And what I want to propose basically back to anyone who say that is, why does that exist? It doesn't explain itself. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I propose as a sliver of the proof that God exists, is saying that this spirit that I'm claiming exists is the cause of matter. Because there's no reason 
to believe that matter is just sitting around and always has been sitting around. And it doesn't explain itself. It, 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 it begs for an explanation. Without some cause for where this stuff comes from, the universe is like a great big chain link. I've got a chain here and each link is held by another link and each link is held by another link. Something somewhere is holding up the whole chain. Right? God is the cause ultimately. He's the one who says the buck stops here. Okay? Uh, so this is one you kind of almost have to go back and, 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 and kind of think about. And, and at some point it kind of hits you that there has to be a reason why there's something rather than not. That's the first argument uh, from the world around us. Here's the second, and I've got much more space on your notes devoted to it. Okay? And it's called order in the world. Now, intuitively, this is something that you have to again, you have to kind of stop and think about. One of my favorite stories from order in the world as a cause for the existence of God comes from long ago, they sent a probe, to, first ever probe to Mars, the Viking lander. Landed in 1976. It was Viking lander was going around Mars and taking pictures. I don't know how many of you have ever heard this before, um, but it snapped a picture of something that looked just like a human face. And it was in the Sidonia region of Mars. And when that picture got sent back to NASA, what did people say? Life on Mars. Because how else could a face exist? Somebody, must have, somebody with a face must have made a face and formed a face. So that's proof. You see how we almost intuitively believe that there's a cause whenever there's order? Okay. Um, um, you know, if you were flying through an airplane and you looked down through your window and you saw the island down there in the sea below and great big logs spelled up on the beach, S-O-S. You'd say, oh, somebody needs help. You wouldn't think, oh, they just washed up on shore. They just, they, that just sort of happened, right? Um, and you see the Mona Lisa. You don't think Leonardo carried a blank canvas walking past a paint factory which spontaneously exploded and oh hey look at that <laughs> it looks pretty good no somebody created it somebody formed it okay the argument from order in the world basically looks at how unbelievably complex and ordered the world is and it says this had to have been made by superhuman intelligence and I've got a million little arguments for you and there is a really neat little argument you can, you can go over you can go over some of these uh they're, they're really kind of fun to, to ponder. Thousands of bats live in one cave. They take off spontaneously and they never bump into each other. How the heck, right? <laughs> honeycomb of a bee. You ever considered this? Six equal sides, six equal angles, holds the most honey with the least expenditure of wax. It's hard to attribute that kind of intelligence to the bee. Um, a car gets 25 miles to a gallon. A 747 gets six gallons to the mile. A black pearl warbler is a little bird who travels 2,400 miles from Nova Scotia to South America nonstop for four days and four nights with an estimated efficiency of 720,000 miles to the gallon. And my favorite little example is the last one here. Birds migrate um, over long distances and somehow they can foretell the weather miles away and days in advance. So there's a study from the Smithsonian Institution across six years, 1979, 93 different bird migrations of over 500 miles. Of 93 different bird migrations, 91 avoided all bad weather. 
which somehow implies these birds somehow know when to fly before leaving shore based on what the weather will be like days later, hundreds of miles away. It's really amazing. It's really now. Sometimes people will um, leap forward to Charles Darwin and natural selection. I've got a section of that here at the end of your notes here as well. I, I address that. Let's just address that real briefly. They say, well, you know, that just that happens all by itself. Actually, it doesn't. Let me try to explain to you why. Natural selection does, you know, Charles Darwin and natural selection does explain a lot of things. Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands off the coast of South America in the 1830s. Darwin bred finches. He knew all about birds. And he knew how to breed birds. And he saw these uh, birds in the Galapagos Islands. And um, he discovered that there was this dried up fruit. uh, And the only way to get the dried up fruit was to peck through the hard exterior to get the fruit on the inside. Well, he discovered that some animals had long beaks and some animals had short beaks. And guess what? The long beaks got the fruit and the short beaks didn't. And he concluded, hey, look at that. The long beaks survive and the short beaks don't survive. There's another example of natural selection. There's a a soft-shell crab in this bay off the coast of Japan. I think it's Tokyo Bay. Off the coast of Japan. And on the back of this soft-shell crab is a formation that looks just like a samurai warrior. Have you heard of this before? Looks just like a samurai. And here's how it happened. The fishers would go fishing for centuries and they'd haul up the fish and in the net they'd find the crabs and they'd find these crabs that looked like a samurai warrior and they thought it was the soul of a deceased samurai and throw them back. But guess what happened to the crab whose shell didn't look like a samurai warrior? He ended up for dinner. So what happened? All the crabs looked like samurai warriors. That's natural selection. Um, natural selection does work, but it doesn't go anything like near far enough to explain the complexities of cell biology. It just, here, I got a little example for you here. Um, the bacterial flagellum. On a bacteria, there's a little outboard motor, a little rotary motor. It's on the back of every single bacteria. You probably have millions of these things crawling all over you at the moment. Okay? That little outboard motor has 32 moving parts, and absolutely all of them are necessary. It's what's called irreducible complexity. For example, a mousetrap has irreducible complexity. You can't gradually evolve a mousetrap. Every single piece in the mousetrap, the board, the spring, it's all necessary or the thing doesn't work. You can't explain irreducible complexity the same way you can explain the finch, the beak of a finch, or the shell of a soft-shell crab. Make sense? Darwin didn't have the depth of science that we have now. It really doesn't go to explain the incredible complexity. I mean, you talk about the human brain that can produce 100 trillion calculations in a second. That's still 2,000 times faster than your average home computer. It does all this on 10 watts of power, and it's 75% water. Um, you know, that, that just, and, and one cell in your body contains more information than the entire Library of Congress. And I say, it's as if it bears a label which says, made by superhuman intelligence. That's the argument for mortar. So you can see SOS on a beach and you say somebody's in trouble. But when you look at the complexity of your own brain, you say, ah, it just kind of happened. It doesn't make any sense. Does it make sense? That's the argument That's the argument from order. By the way, I have to throw one more thing out here for you. And that's, um, you ever heard it said you put enough monkeys in a room and you give them typewriters and you give them a billion years and eventually they'll type out Shakespeare's Hamlet? Or, you ever heard that before? Okay. Really interesting. There's a, there's, there's a mathematician at Rice University. His name's Michael Denton. And he actually did an experiment on this. 
and it turns out that it's manifestly untrue. Uh, I've got the, uh, the, uh, the probability here. Is random keystrokes on a typewriter. Okay? Um, one in 30 random keystrokes will, prefer, will produce a three-letter English word. One in 10 to the 14 random keystrokes will produce a 12-letter English word. If you wanted to come up with a sentence 100 letters long, it's 1 in 10 to the 130. Now, there are only 10 to the 76 atoms in the known universe. I mean, it's astronomically improbable. So the answer is, mathematically speaking, you, you can't have infinite opportunities, and eventually one of them will work out to this degree of specificity. That's the argument from order. That makes sense? I got all these little arguments here, and these are really, really interesting little arguments. I just had fun combing all these arguments, uh, combing all these arguments together. Um, um, yeah, it's just it's 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 it's, it's really it's really fun. It's it's uh, the probability of all this happening all by itself on its own. Um, you know, it's it's like the probability of uh, winning the lottery every single day for a hundred years. You don't have to win the lottery more than once before you. I, I actually knew a priest who talked to a woman. I'm going to go on a tangent here. It has nothing to do with the existence of God. She won the lottery. It was in Saskatchewan. This priest was from Manitoba. Uh, uh, the woman was from Saskatchewan. And she won the lottery, and uh, she gave the parish $5,000. She won $1.8 million Canadian dollars. The priest didn't take the money. He said, this is a token offering compared with what you won, and I'm not accepting it. And she was upset, and she wrote the bishop, and the bishop wrote the priest, you dingleberry, you moron, what the heck? You insulted her, you turned on a $5,000 gift, he stuck to his guns. Six months later, the woman came back and she said, you know what, Father? Actually, you're right. $5,000 compared with what I want is a token offering. Here's the deal. I'll give you $80,000 and I'll match it with 80000 more if you'll all start an outreach to the homeless in your area. And he goes, well, now you're talking. <laughs> you know what happened to that woman six months later? She won the lottery again. <laughs> no joke. Okay, so, and people begin to think it's fixed. Well, the things that happen to this degree of specificity, either there's an intelligence behind it or it's fixed. I'm saying if you're honest, you'll recognize there's an intelligence behind it, okay? There's one more argument for, from just your own experience, and it's what I call the argument from the existence of saints. Now, I could go into you and I could tell you many, many stories of saints, but let me just summarize it for you really briefly. If you learn about what the saints were really like, you'll be hard-pressed to answer this question. Why are they so good? Nobody else is anywhere near as good as the saints are. And every single saint you study, in some form or another, they have this incredible goodness. Here's an example. St. Vincent de Paul, right? Who's heard of St. Vincent de Paul? He helped the poor. St. Vincent de Paul begged on the streets of Paris in the 17th century. A man walked up to him and slapped him in the face. Now, this is, he was basically the founder of modern social work, Vincent de Paul was. So people begging to help my charity, I'm going to help the poor. That was something nobody knew. And he says, you're inflamed boil on the buttocks of this city, and, and you're, an, you're an insult to all of us. Slapped him in the face. What did the Gospels tell us to do when you're struck on one cheek? Do you remember? Turn the other cheek. He turned the other cheek, literally, without missing a beat. He said, I'll take that from me. Cut out the, his hand again. Now give me something for the poor. Without missing a beat. No resentment, no anger. Who acts like that? Here's another example. St. Uh, Maximilian Kolbe. You ever heard of Maximilian Kolbe? Maximilian Kolbe was a priest who died in Auschwitz. 
1941. Okay? But the thing about Maximilian Kolbe is he volunteered to die. A man escaped from Auschwitz prison. One man escaped from Auschwitz prison. Um, and you know those Nazis are not known for their compassion. So what they did, they lined up all the prisoners, and they, every tenth prisoner was going to be killed. Decimation. Decimate, literal decimation. And he said, uh, as if way saying, if anybody ever escapes again, this is what you're, this is what you're doing to your fellow, your friends, because these people knew each other, right? What, and every, and they, the way they killed them, they put them in a starvation bunker. I don't know if you've heard this story before, but there's a, about the size of this room, there's a bunker, um, and, they, and they just stuff it full of people. No, I've, been to, I've been there, I've seen it with my own eyes. About the size of this room, they'd stuff it full of people, and they'd lock the door, and you just imagine, you could probably stuff 100 people in this room. Lock the door, and they just leave you all there until you're all dead. Talk about a bad way to go. Well, anyway, they called off the people to be killed, and one man, he dropped to his knees, and he said, I have to live. I got a wife, I got a, I got a family, I, I've got to survive this place. And when, they, when they put you in Auschwitz prison, they, they promised you that if you did your work, they, they'd let you, yeah, that's what they promised you. There's a great big sign on the entrance of Auschwitz that says, Arbeit macht frei, work will set you free. And that's how they got them to work, slave labor. But it was a lie, they killed them all. I, I got to survive, I got to survive. Maximilian Kobe was not called out. And he stepped forward and he says, I'll take that man's place, you can kill me. Who does that, right? Who does that? That's what the saints were like. Well, what do they, what do they all have in common? They all have this deep belief in God. Either they were all deluded fools or they were on to something. <laughs> that's, that's the argument. Um, and really, you have to know about saints and how deeply, deeply good they really were and how consistently, not, they weren't picky. They were like that to everybody. Right? They were always like that. That's the argument from saints. Okay, so those are arguments from our own experience. Here's this is a little bit deeper now, but just something to consider. Arguments. Um, I'm sorry. Those are arguments from the world around us. Here's arguments from experience. Here's one of my favorites. It's called the argument from desire, and you have to think deeply about this. Everybody has desires, but if you stop and think about it, there's two kinds of desires you have. Some that are natural, and every single person in the whole world has them. You know, like the desire for something to eat, companionship, something to drink, everybody wants to sleep when they're tired, etc. Everyone in the whole world, everybody has it. Everybody falls in love. Um, but then there's conditioned desires, fake desires. Like, I could desire that my favorite team wins the World Series. I could desire uh, to fly through the air like Superman. But before someone told me about Superman... That desire didn't exist. Before there was a game of baseball, that desired. It was a conditioned desire. Okay. The interesting thing about natural desires is that every single one corresponds to something that actually exists. You desire friendship, there's such a thing as friendship. You desire food, you're hungry, there's such a thing as food. You desire uh, rest, there's such a thing as rest. You desire uh, you're thirsty, there's such a thing as water. Okay. There's one more desire and everybody has it. And it's this universal desire for something more. No matter what you have, you always want more. Now, people fool themselves all their life long. They say, if I can just get this job, I'll be happy. If I can just get her to love me, I'll be happy. If I can just get 
a million dollars, I'll be happy. But then there's always that desire for the one million first dollar, right? It never, and the funniest thing about this, the happier people, the more people achieve, the more they've accomplished, the more acutely they know this. I was watching a biography of John Lennon. Um, certainly no saint, but a man who achieved everything his life he ever wanted. Uh, fame, the whole world adored him, all this. Everyone sang his songs. There was like this period of his life where he just locked himself in his house, wouldn't go out. And he couldn't figure out why he was unhappy when everything in his life was... The more successful you are, the more you accomplish what you think you want, the more acutely you realize there's something more. Okay. The idea here is that every single natural universal desire in the world has a corresponding fulfillment. Doesn't it make sense that there's something more that actually does exist? Now, nothing in this world fulfills it. Doesn't at least kind of make sense that there's something more, something beyond this world? That's the argument from desire. I think it's really cool. Okay? Um, um, every other desire in the world is like an appetizer. You get the appetizer, it makes you hungrier. This, what I'm trying to say, there's something more. It's the main course. If the main course doesn't exist, what's the point of all the appetizers? It's like a dirty trick. But not even dirty tricks are accidents, they're designed, right? Um, so that's the argument from desire. And, 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 and it's just something to stop and think about. Um, ducks were made to swim, and they're made for water. Lions hate cages, they were made to be born free. The world is very beautiful. Why do we feel like it's a cage? Why is it not enough? Let me give you a real con acute thought experiment to help make this case. Think for a moment of the happiest moment of your entire life. Just call it to mind, whatever it might be. Um, for a lot of people, it's something childhood. Maybe they were five years old and it was Christmas, something like that. Now, take that happiest moment and multiply it out until it lasts for 5,000 years. Don't you very quickly tire of it. Whatever it is, it's not enough. Okay? It's not enough. You were made for more than this world. And it's a universal desire. We all have this. That's the argument that the something more, which I'm trying to say is God, actually does exist. Okay. Conscience. This is a deeper one, too. You ever notice that even the history's greatest villains always tried to justify themselves? I mean, you, you, get a, you know, uh, Hermann Goering. Um, you know who Hermann Goering is? Hermann yeah. Goering, he was the head of the Luftwaffe, uh, one of Hitler's right-hand right men. He, when he was... Um, uh, he committed suicide in uh, the post-World War II trials in Nuremberg. But before he did, the last thing he's recorded as saying is that 50 years from today there will be statues in my honor all across Germany. He thought he was a hero. Mm -hmm. He thought he was a hero. Um, Stalin thought he was a hero. Pol Pot thought he was a hero. Everybody thought he was a hero. You ever find anybody out there who's like, I'm not a hero, I do evil and I love it. It doesn't exist. There's something inside you that makes this absolute universal binding claim that you're always supposed to do good. You could be wrong about what good is, and you could be very, very, very wrong about what good is, but you still justify yourself by saying you're doing good. What's the cause of this absolute authority that demands exceptionless obedience to you? I'm suggesting that the only absolute authority that could possibly demand exceptionless obedience is the absolute infinity that we call God. Now, people can get really mis misunderstanding of... To, what that is, but the fact that there's this voice inside you that constantly says do good and won't let you rest 
It, you'll, it'll twist your understanding of good before it'll make you think that you'll stop doing good. I want to say that that's the existence, that, 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 that such a cause of that universal, uh, that universal knowledge of right and wrong, such a cause must exist. That's the argument from conscience. Okay? Again, just a sliver of God. Here's one that uh, you either get it or you don't. Beauty. I knew a friend who was an agnostic in college and he went hiking in the Alps and one evening hiking in the Alps he watched the sunset over the Alps and there's a rainbow that arched across the sky and nestled right on a medieval castle as the sun set over the snow-capped Alps and he said to me you know that makes me believe in God it's intuitive does that make sense there's something about you know you give an atheist a newborn baby and their heart melts, and they're like, you know, maybe there's a God after all. There's something about beauty, and it brings a tear to your eye. And it kind of, it, it's, I, I could go further, further philosophically down the road. It's actually a direct experience of what God is when you experience beauty. Um, it's actually a direct experience of what God is, and something in you <laughs> acknowledges that. Um, um, but then there, 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 there are many, many more of these, and you can look over these in your notes. But, um, but there's something in us, a seed of eternity, that's irreducible to merely material things. And what I want to suggest here is that you can know, whatever I've just described, you can know God exists and it takes no faith whatsoever. Do you know we actually teach that as a church? We actually teach as a church that you can know that God exists and it's not faith, it's knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to know everything that we believe about God, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to leave love your neighbor. But we actually teach as a church that from the light of your own reason alone, you can know that there's a spirit that's infinite, that's good, that's all these things that I lined up. You can know that. You can make lots of mistakes about that. Lots and lots of mistakes. You could be way, way off as to what this God is asking of you. Um, but that you can know that there's the God out there. We say we can actually know that, and it isn't faith. It's just knowledge. And that's why if somebody says, do you believe in God? Actually, I always answer them by saying, I actually know God exists. I actually know it. It's not a belief. I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is God come down to earth. I believe that I'm supposed to love my enemy. But I know that there's a God. I actually know it. We actually teach that as a church. Um, and the fact is, you can be way, way off, gravely mistaken as to what God asks of you. And that's why we believe that God revealed himself to us. And the subject of revelation, God telling us who he is, that's what we're going to talk about next week. Okay? So good enough for one day? Okay.